Birds of Hope. Father Dominic Four gives the third talk at a retreat in Walsingham on sharing in Mary's joy. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners and be our Father. Amen. Saint John, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We mentioned this morning the joy of the intelligence of knowing the truth. Our Lady seeing clearly at the moment of the Annunciation who she is and starting to see the fullness of the intention of God on her. And there's a joy of the intelligence to know the truth and ultimately to be able to know God face to face. There's always, for me, a, a beautiful dialogue, even if it was probably painful for Christ, but the dialogue at the end between Philip and Jesus shows the Father. This desire of the intelligence of Philip to see God. I'm not sure that there would be many people today who would have this type of question. And sure, the answer of Jesus manifests that he was hurt at a certain level, with the fact that Philip didn't realize that he could see the depths of the heart of his father through Jesus. But nevertheless, there was the question, shows the father. And you know the famous story about Teresa of Avila, huh, who wanted to see God as a child, and therefore, as a child, didn't hesitate to go out of the city at night when there were Muslims all around, because no one can see God without dying, and she wanted to die. So, you know, this is the type of thirst that we see in the saints, which surprises us, but which would, in fact, should be normal. I was rereading the beginning of this apostolic exhortation. The Lord wants us to be saints and not to settle for a bland and mediocre existence and not to desire to see God is already having chosen to settle for a mediocre existence because we have been created for that, to see him face to face and to enjoy what we see and to enjoy this attraction of an infinite goodness. And the whole life of Jesus, the whole mission of Jesus, we said it this morning, is to lead us to know God. Eternal life is that we know the Father. So there's definitely a joy of knowing, but more precisely, a contemplative joy, the joy of knowing God and one day being able to see Him face to face. There's also the joy linked of the desire. Saint Catherine of Siena doesn't hesitate to say that what is best in our life of charity on earth is the desire. And you remember how Therese was really a woman of incredible desires. She wanted to be everything. She desired to be everything. And of course, a life without desire is very bland. A life without desire is, you know, very poor. While 
people who have changed the world have been people who have huge desires. Eh? Those who have really made a difference were people who had a great desire at any level. And of course, the greater the desires, the more we need to hope, because it would be foolish to desire something that you know you will not be able to reach. So if indeed we have been created for this fullness, to know God and to see Him as He is, knowing that by ourselves we are incapable to do it, if God has put in each one of us, in our intelligence, in our heart, therefore the best in us, which is our spirit, by nature and by grace, this unquenchable desire to stay with him and to see him face to face, then he needs to give us what will sustain us in hope. Otherwise, we would fall in despair. And indeed, the Christian desire is much deeper than the Jewish desire. Jewish desire was, first of all, to receive a Messiah. Our Christian desire is to see God face to face and to do it as quickly as possible. Which implies that our hope, the hope that is given to us through Christ, goes much deeper than the hope of a Jew. We said it this morning. And this, this joy of desiring, desiring in hope, and even more when we recognize that God responds to our desires by allowing us to anticipate what he wants to give us. Or, said otherwise, he would not give us the desire unless he was already planning to give us what we desire. Which is again famous at the center of Therese. She said that we should have huge desires knowing that they come from the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will fulfill them. And indeed, when we look at the Gospel, we see clearly this constant way of God in His providence, in His government, to anticipate, to give us, in a certain way, more quickly than what we would expect, to give us, let's say, in advance, the fullness that he wants to offer at the end. Um, maybe the best example, one of the best examples is the Eucharist. The Eucharist, which is the gift of Jesus crucified and glorified, given as a food, is given to us before the cross takes place. He gives us the fruit of the cross before the tree of the cross is planted. Uh, another obvious example is uh, the mystery of the Immaculate Conception. Our Lady, much before the cross, obviously, enjoys the greatest fruits of the cross and the mystery of the Immaculate. With something that implies not only mercy, because whatever God gives us is always a gift of mercy, but mercy square in the sense that not only He gives us what we could not obtain by ourselves, but He gives it to us in anticipation and he gives it to us nearly before we're ready to receive it um, and again it's clear in the gospel Jesus gave them the Eucharist gave them all the teaching that we have during the last supper while they were not really ready to receive it and they received it very poorly 
Jesus could have waited for them to have gone through the shock of his death on the cross and to have finally opened themselves to the joy of the resurrection. And after that, when everybody was in peace, he could have given them the Eucharist. Then they would probably have received it properly. While he gives it to them when they are full of anxiety, there's tension around Jesus in Jerusalem. And the fact is that they didn't receive it properly because at the end, the food for love and for faithfulness leads only one to be faithful at the foot of the cross journal. Which means that it's a mercy squared, uh, what Thérèse calls the prevenient mercy. And remember how she uses this little parable when uh, he says there are two ways for the father to mercifully love his child. One way is to let the child walk and fall, and then uh, the father runs towards the child in order to help him and put him back on his two feet. That's already an act of mercy in the sense of helping the one who is weak. And there's another way, which is for the father to remove all the stones in front of the child so that he will never fall. And that's a mercy exercise in a perfect way. And she said she recognized that it was the way Jesus was treating her so that, in fact, she never really had a chance, according to her, she never really had a chance to make a major fall because Jesus was removing all the stones in front of her. So the hope that uh, we see in the Magnificat, and second part, especially the second part of the Magnificat, already in the Magnificat with Our Lady, but for each one of us, is very much related to this certitude that there is no limit in the mercy that God is ready to offer to us. The hope that he is giving us a stable joy, allowing us to maintain in a stable way great desires, is linked to the fact that whatever we do, uh, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, whatever we do, we have already in the victory of the cross, in the fact of the cross, we have already the deep certitude that Jesus has opened to us all the merciful love and offered to us all the merciful love that the Father is ready to offer. There is no limit to this mercy. Obviously, in the culture of justice, which is more and more the modern culture, what is the consequence? It becomes a culture of despair. Because when you're in a culture of justice, if you don't perform properly, you're out. Whether you're an embryo, or whether you are an old person, or you know whatever situation of weakness, a culture of justice gets rid of whatever is weak. There's no chance for the weak. And that's a modern culture. While a culture of mercy, which normally is the Christian culture, if it still exists, a culture of mercy is the only way for a culture of hope, for, for maintaining a life of hope. Because in a culture of mercy, uh, the weak members are respected, the weak members are protected, and even more, if we follow St. Paul, the weak members are even those that are the most loved and the most respected. Therefore, there is no anxiety anymore, no no temptation of despair. And 
I wanted from there to uh, knowing that there's no limit. Now we know for sure because we've seen what love is all about at the cross. Knowing that there's no limit to the mercy that God wants to offer to us, then we can have great desires and great desires that we can live with fullness of hope because after all the desire to be a saint that's the normal desire after baptism and we can keep it in hope because uh, that's again the normal desire and even if we are weak even if we fall in a certain way it doesn't matter because there's no limit to the merciful love that God has for us the desire to to be the best possible uh, worker in the church, the desire to, to know Jesus and through him to know his Father as deeply as possible, all those desires, we should keep them uh, because they don't depend anymore or they are not measured anymore by any perfection or imperfection in us. We know for sure that whatever imperfection in us, the merciful love of God for us is such that those desires should be fulfilled. So... Um, Having discovered at the cross that there's no limit to the mercy offered by God to us, we can have huge desires lived in the fullness of hope. And from there, which is eminently joyful, but it's even more than this, uh, uh, in the sense that it's not a desire to be hoping for, it's not a desire to be realized in the future, it's a desire to be realized now. And that's the whole difference between a Christian hope and a religious hope. The desire to now live a communion with Christ, the desire to now live of this friendship with Him, the desire now to know Him, again, the question of Philip, so is the Father, and Jesus was surprised, but... Why do you ask this? Whoever sees me now, sees the Father, don't postpone for the future. So the mystery of hope, which is a gift, it's a gift which allows us to anticipate the fullness that we desire and to anticipate joyfully this fullness, because by definition this fullness will give us fullness of joy. And Jesus is very clear during the Last Supper when he says, I've told you all this so that your joy can be full. And therefore, what I've told you should allow you to live now of all that I will obtain for you at the cross. And at the cross, everything is fulfilled. Jesus has obtained everything for us. And Jesus has obtained everything for us, as St. Paul says, while we were still his enemies. So not based on our perfection, not based on our faithfulness, but objectively, he has obtained everything for each one of us. Up to us, obviously, to accept to live of it now. And I think that that's something that we usually don't live properly. Um, Our Lady in the Magnificat enjoys at the time of the Magnificat the fullness of what God will do later. When she speaks at the present time of what will happen later. He has 
disperse the arrogance of mind and heart. Uh, that was not her direct experience. Huh? He has thrown down the rulers. Uh, think about Herod. That was not yet an experience. The hungry he has filled with good things. Uh, not yet done. But she already, in her hope, lives by anticipation of the fullness that Christ will offer from the cross. And I was telling you that uh, in a certain way this is the fullness of joy just before the real fullness of joy which will be in glory, in the beatific vision. Uh, in a, if in my hope I live of what Christ has obtained for me, then what is only missing is to see. That will be the only difference between earth and heaven. Now I live of what Christ has has obtained for me without seeing. After my death, I will live of the same what Christ has obtained for me, but seeing. That will be a difference for the intelligence, obviously, but no difference for the heart. And uh, I think that most of us, if not all of us, miss, in a certain way, not the best part, but the best exercise of this divine life offered to us. And Jesus offers to us to participate to his divine life in friendship, which is what friendship is all about, communion of life. But there are two ways in friendship. Either we open ourselves to the communion offered by the friend according to our ways or according to his ways. Uh, and the The different ways of leading a friendship depend on prudence. Some, out of prudence, leave a friendship according to their ways. Okay, I like Italian food and my friend will be invited every day in an Italian restaurant. Others leave the same friendship, the same love, according to the way of their friend. He likes sushi and every day I will have to eat raw fish. And of course the second one is much more heroic because it forces me to go constantly out of my way, which is what love is all about, in order to embrace the way of the other one. And we can do exactly the same with charity. We can live of the same gift of charity according to our ways or according to the ways of Christ. We can live our life of charity by choosing how we are going to exercise our charity, by choosing uh, to give our tithe to the church, by choosing the budget that we keep uh, every month for the poor, whatever way, or by choosing the little time that we will give to the Blessed Sacrament every day, which is better than nothing, obviously. And there's another way, which is a heroic way, which is to be pulled by Christ in order to exercise our charity according to his way, which obviously is a little scary because his ways end up at the cross. And and his way, the ways that he offers to Peter, another one will lead you where you don't want to go. So obviously by prudence, human prudence, and therefore by natural fear, uh, we, we are ready to love, obviously. We want to love. We enjoy loving and loving Christ and 
but we would prefer to use our ways. And, and maybe that's the difference between a mediocre life of charity and a heroic life of, of charity, knowing that it is only the second one, which is a life of sanctity. And we know, we know, we have already mentioned the example, and we know the result. And the young rich man, the young rich man had charity, and he was observing the law, and he was probably a very good Jew, loving God. But he was still not open to loving God according to the ways of Christ. He was still, he was still not ready to love in a way forcing him to, to leave his comfort zone, and he left sad. Which means that charity normally should be joyful, because joy is always the fruit of love, but charity exercise according to our ways quickly becomes not very joyful with the risk of becoming duty and definitely with the risk of becoming mediocre. It's the same at the level of natural love. Huh? If in love I'm not ready to take risk and to go out of my comfort zone, very quickly my, my love and my friendship becomes, uh, what are the words of the Holy Father, bland. Huh? become, you know, doesn't taste anything anymore after a while. Huh? And love demands that I always we choose to take risk, we choose to give more, we choose to, to leave my comfort zone uh, because it feeds itself by this type of fire. And when Jesus speaks of charity, when he speaks of his mission, this is the symbolism that he uses. I've come to bring a fire on earth, uh, which is a known symbolism because it's a burning bush. Huh? And, and it's something that Pope Benedict reminded us of in his encyclical on Deus Caritas. Huh? Uh, the love of God, the mission of charity offered to us is violent. Um, it's not something that we can control. Uh, it's not something that is according to our measure. It forces us to enter in its violence, and the kingdom is for the violent. And that's scary. Uh, it's scary because this violence of charity leads Jesus not only to the cross, but to desire the cross. Every desire with a great desire to drink this cup. Uh, it is scary because it implies such not only physical death, but a radical death to self. Uh, when uh, Jesus prepares the Last Supper, St. John is very precise. He loved his own to the end. And the sign of it is that he's washing their feet, Lord and them. The sign of it is that is willing to give his flesh as a food and therefore losing everything. So all this is quite scary. Yeah? To love God according to our ways, fine. To love God according to the ways of Christ, quite risky. Uh, we have to love our enemies. We have to forgive 70 times, 7 times. We have to invite more the enemies than the friends. Oh, okay, that's not exactly what we usually live. Huh? Um, and yeah, I think the, the difference between us and a saint is that the saint has accepted and chosen 
to love according to the ways of Christ, while we have been stuck in receiving charity but exercising it according to our ways. And the Church is very precise when she tries to to discern a true sanctity. She looks at the heroism. She looks at the heroicity through the virtues, in fact, of the charity, of the exercise of charity of the saint. The saint, in a certain way, because of the boiling charity in him and the choice to respond without extinguishing the fire, but putting more oil on the fire, a saint is always in front of us. We follow him more or less because they run faster than us. So... On one hand, scary to live of this type of joy. Um, on the other hand, it's possible. And it is possible not because of us. It is possible because the Holy Spirit makes it possible. Uh, he is the one who allows us, who educates us to love as Christ loves. Uh, to live as Christ lives. And therefore, to live of this charity not only in a way that it keeps growing, which obviously should, is important, but also at each step of its growth to use it in the most heroic way, uh, in a way which is more connatural to Christ than connatural to ourselves. And, and, um, and obviously that demands from us to develop a greater and greater docility to the Holy Spirit. Very often, unfortunately, charity and sanctity have been measured and educated at the moral level, at the level of the virtues. In the name of the love for God, we should do this, we should give that, which is true but which already limits the proper exercise of charity from what it should be heroic to a measure which is the measure of the virtues, the measure coming from man in his prudence. Or said otherwise, charity demands to be exercised in an imprudent way, which is quite difficult for us when we obviously have all tried to develop a prudence. When I say imprudent way, I mean the prudence of Christ, not our prudence. And the prudence of Christ, uh, remember it was a text that we had a few days ago in morning office, I think, prayer. Yeah. As far as the skies from the earth, as far the prudence of God from the prudence of man. And, and St. Paul underlines that the the prudence of God is a scandal for the pagans, the prudence of the cross. But it should be our wisdom. That's what we should aim at. And it's only when we desire, and of course there we have to ask for it, when we desire to receive more and more the ways of God, the prudence of Christ, it is really there that we are called to really discover the true Christian joy, eh? Christian joy of knowing, great Christian joy of receiving mercy, great. But the fullness of the Christian joy is to live like Christ. Um, the fullness of the Christian joy is therefore to, yeah, to be led by the only one who can allow us to live like Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. And of course, the, the, 
de Best example for us is Our Lady. As Immaculate, she was so docile, she was so open to all the, the tiny motions of the Holy Spirit in her that she was constantly led. She, she was constantly led in a heroic way. I was going to say that in a culture which is very noisy, which is our culture, in a culture which is really at the level of uh, activities and efficiency, there's a terrible risk to prevent us from entering in this inner silence and also in this inner poverty, allowing the spirit not to speak but to move us. Because the Holy Spirit needs to find in us poverty in order to lead us, and He needs to find in us silence in order for us to be docile to the little, to the tiny motions through which He wants to lead us. And indeed, Our Lady, as Immaculate, was the poorest creature, and in the same time, the most silent one, because she was constantly pulled by attraction towards the mystery of God, she was constantly focused on only one thing is necessary, God and God alone. Um, she was constantly attentive, and when you are constantly attentive and even admiring and even contemplating, then you become silent. So there was really in her the best possible disposition as Immaculate in poverty and in inner silence to be constantly docile to the Holy Spirit, leading her in a heroic way. Heroic way that we see clearly every time we see something concerning Our Lady in the Gospel. The simple fact that after the Annunciation, she came directly to Elizabeth, not respecting what her human heart would have demanded, which is to go to Joseph. Um, I'm sure that she loved Elizabeth, but she loved Joseph much more. Uh, and the one who had the right and even the need to receive the good news was not first of all Elizabeth, it was Joseph. And Our Lady, led by the Holy Spirit, accepted at that moment to this heroic exercise of charity to go not to Joseph, but to go to Elizabeth. Uh, we see other moments in the Gospel uh, the, the finding in the temple, uh, Cana, we see how Our Lady was silently docile and silently capable to carry, to carry the anxiety of Joseph, to silently be, be docile to the will of God in her dialogue with Jesus at Cana. But obviously it is at the end, at the cross, that we see this extreme docility of Our Lady. Uh, where, again, Our Lady is so silent in order to be fully attentive and receptive of all that Jesus lives and offers. He offers himself in offering his life in a way that she can perfectly be one with him in his mission. Uh, she ends up, because of her poverty, because of her docility to the Holy Spirit, offering to her to be the closest to Jesus at that moment, she ends up being the one who, in a certain way, fulfills 
the mystery of the redemption by receiving the Holy Spirit from the heart of Jesus pierced. So the mystery of of charity, which in itself should be source of joy in us, obviously, the joy of loving, and that's one of the fruits of charity. Uh, this joy demands to be a joy to the full, the fullness of joy. And this fullness of joy, we said, can only happen in us when we are fully alive. And charity is not enough to make us fully alive. In order to be fully alive, we have not only to have charity, but to use it according to the ways of Christ. Life implies a movement. Life implies an action. So to have charity is one thing, but the best example is uh, is in us. Huh? When we sleep, we have charity. We don't lose our charity every night before sleeping, but we don't use it. Okay, We are not fully alive, but it is there. And in a certain way, when in our charity we are not under the motion of the Holy Spirit, we are not sleeping, but we are still half asleep. We don't use it properly. Um, we use it in halfway. It's like having a super race car and still driving it as if you had an old uh, model of, I don't know, American car or whatever. You, you don't use it properly. And, and more than a race car, Jesus gives us divine life, but most of us, if not all of us, we don't use it properly. We just waste it. Which means that this fullness of joy that the Immaculate enjoyed, this fullness of joy to which Jesus invites us, in which Jesus invites us to enter, this fullness of joy proclaimed by joy, and what we have seen is the word of life, and we proclaim it so that we have full communion in joy. Uh, this fullness of joy necessarily demands, like Our Lady as a model, that we become more and more docile to the ways of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. And first of all, the poverty linked to the gift of fear, um, the prudence, a totally new prudence linked to the gift of counsel. Um, when you're called to run one mile, run two miles. When you're called to give your shirt, give your coat. Uh, when you have the last two coins, and if you lose them, uh, you'll be in, in extreme poverty, give them. This love to the end, this heroic type of life, which is the life of Christ, and which is what the Holy Spirit wants to, to offer to us. We will leave it in any case in heaven, but the big question is, do we want to leave it already? In heaven, by definition, we will live according to the rhythm of Christ, totally depossessed of our own ways. But I was going to say a Jew would do the same, and a Muslim also, in case he's in a state of grace. But the privilege that we have is that we are called to live it now. So, to live now of this perfect exercise of charity. That's a good side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that we have to accept, or even desire, first of all, to yet yeah, to lose our own securities, to lose our own natural prudence, and to desire to live of the prudence of Christ, 
and to be helped there by the Holy Spirit, especially the gift of counsel. So the joy, the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy that Christ offers to us is not simply a fruit of charity, it's not only therefore a gift linked to charity, but it's also a gift coming from the Holy Spirit offered to us. Or said otherwise, we couldn't survive, we couldn't live properly without charity. Uh, as Jesus says, so in a certain way, charity is a need. Uh, as he says, uh, without me, you cannot do anything. Or what Santa Thomas says, without charity, money is not good for anything. He can only build houses and take care of vineyards, meaning nothing spiritual. So we cannot survive properly as a human being without charity. But we can survive very well without being moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in a certain way, I don't know, most people who have a minimum of charity, uh, otherwise they wouldn't have any more spiritual life, who have a minimum of charity, are not really enjoying the pearl, which is to live now like Christ of the fullness. And maybe there's something that we have to ask ourselves. How imprudent do we accept to be in order to follow Christ, not how prudent, eh? but how imprudent in our own eyes or in the eyes of the world. Eh? Um, the other gospel that we could have had today manifested Jesus imprudent. He didn't even have time to have lunch, and that was considered as imprudent. Um, same uh, multiplication of the loaves, it was imprudent to follow Jesus without any food. Hopefully they found a few fish and a few loaves in the basket of a little child. But Jesus expected this imprudence because in any case, he had already his intention to feed them in a different way. And probably, this is maybe the... In, in the same time, the most scary and in the same time, the most important witnessing that the Church has to give today. And the Church, hopefully, the Holy Church, the Church has hopefully always somehow manifested charity, but the Church has very often uh, structured the life of charity in a way that was not really manifesting a heroic dimension. And you sense with the Second Vatican Council, you sense with Pope Francis, that there's a call, and he said it explicitly in his first encyclical letter, that there's a call to go out of our way and out of our ways in order to manifest this best, if not perfect, expression of charity which is according to the ways of Christ and therefore heroic according not to our prudence but the prudence of Christ the love to the end and since it is a little retreat I think it's good to, to ask ourselves whether we desire it which is already a good point and second what it would imply that's already a little bit more scary. And third, what are the obstacles that we have to remove which are still there preventing us from running?
uh, when St. Paul says that Christian life is a race, but I think that we are all walking, not really running. <laughs> and we walk with love, there's no problem, but we are walking. And uh, what are the, the obstacles preventing us from running, preventing us from flying under the wings of the Holy Spirit? Um, Saint Teresa of Avila uses another expression, but it's the same at the end when she says that the little bird cannot fly whether there's a chain or whether there's a tiny thread attached to its leg, in any case it cannot fly. So sometimes there are big obstacles, clear. Sometimes it's a tiny thread, but whatever it is, it prevents us from flying. We cannot be docile to this imprudence of Christ or this new prudence of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit because sometimes there's a big chain, sometimes there's a small thread, but nevertheless we cannot fly. And I think it's important to realize that there, there is a cooperation expected from us. Um, the Holy Spirit is offered to us constantly by Christ, clearly in its Eucharist, but our cooperation is subjectively to make sure there is no chain or no threads. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit is there waiting to take us under his doings, but we are still attached to this, uh, to this world and to ourselves. And so that's, I was going to say, that's a real Christian examination of conscience. There's a Jewish examination of conscience in relation to the law. I should not steal, I should not lie, I should not this or that, fine, which is more the moral level. And there's a Christian, a more Christian way of examining our life, which is what are the threads which attach me to, to my ways and to the ways of the world, which prevent me from being fully docile to the Holy Spirit, and, and which in fact prevent me from entering in the joy of the kingdom that Christ has offered to me. And of course there are many, many threads in us. We can be attached to ourselves, we can be attached to whatever, you know, our responsibility, our success, our, our way of judging, our prudence, our health. You know, we can be attached to billions of things, knowing that even if we are detached from all but only one, this one is enough to prevent us from being simply and nearly constantly open to the motions of the Holy Spirit in us and therefore there will not be this joy eh, that Christ came to offer to us. And when we look at the role of Our Lady, I think that her maternal role is essential there. Our Lady is not there to give us charity, it is Christ, but she's there to help us properly exercise this charity. And she's there educating us in the how we live. She doesn't give us the life, it is Christ, but she's there to educate us in the how we use this life. And again, we can use it according to our ways or according to the ways of Christ and the ways of Our Lady. And it's amazing to see that, and Cana is a good example, that Our Lady was sharing the haste of Jesus. Jesus was in haste to start and go to Jerusalem, and Mary was in haste to see him start and go to Jerusalem. It was the same 
urge in both of them, moved by the same spirit, towards the total gift, towards the total sacrifice. And Our Lady is given to us ultimately for that. And she is not first of all given to us in order to console us or in order to pity us or to be there when we cry. Okay, she might be there, obviously. But that's not the main role of Our Lady. And she's given to us as she was given to John at the cross so that we stand. She is not, first of all, given to us so that we can be consoled, even if she accepts this role from time to time. But that's not her main responsibility, neither her main maternal dignity. She's the strong woman who wants that we learn standing, and standing in a heroic way, in the most heroic exercise of charity. A heroic exercise of charity When it is joyful, then we want to give much more. A heroic exercise of charity when it is sorrowful, and then we keep standing, even if it is painful. But it's always a heroic exercise. And this heroic exercise, in which Our Lady wants us to enter more and more, demands, obviously, a very personal relationship with her. You cannot, um, yeah, you can preach, huh? you see that in, in certain fundamentalist type of preaching in any religion, but properly speaking, you cannot invite to a heroic response a crowd. You call each one by name, huh? because it is so personal, basically to expect somebody to be ready to offer his life out of love. Uh, I know that's not what we see in, in the fundamentalist type of movements, whether it is sometimes Christian, sometimes Islamic, or where you have those preachers in front of a crowd inviting everybody to be heroic. And, but that's more seduction, and uh, it's not, properly speaking, a personal encounter at the level of love. Uh. But when we speak here of a heroic life of love, it implies something personal, obviously. And there Our Lady takes us a little bit away from the crowd. Uh, We were speaking after lunch about the different sides of operation of Our Lady. In some of them, there's a crowd, Lourdes, if you go in summer, just one number among thousands of people, which is in a certain way like a first evangelization or re-evangelization, where we need the crowd to support us. It feels good. Everybody is there with a candle and we feel joyful. It helps. Thanks be to God. It's different to go to Lourdes when you go in winter. Then there's nobody. And there you recover what was Lourdes at the beginning, which was a moment of intimacy between Our Lady and Bernadette. And there are other places of pilgrimage, like here, for example, which are really out of the way, out of the crowds, quite hidden, implying a much greater maturity. It's not the first evangelization. It implies that we have already discovered the joy and the need of being in silence alone. 
A lot of people come to Lourdes and they would be incapable to spend half an hour in silence alone because they need the crowd, they need the songs and you know, all this. It's still, uh, again, a first step, which is good. Uh, here is something much, much simpler, much poorer, and therefore much more silent, and which in a certain way can only be tasted by those who have discovered the need of this silence with God. And Our Lady is calling us here, yes, to enjoy in the same time the silent intimacy of the Annunciation that she had for a couple of hours, I guess, the silent intimacy that continued less but nevertheless still there in Bethlehem, and ultimately, yes, also, but in a very different way, the silent intimacy of the cross, where there was indeed a crowd around, but the mystery of suffering was allowed Our Lady and Jesus to be separated from this crowd and silently one for each other. So there's different ways, huh? To, to live a silent intimacy with Jesus, more or less joyful, more or less sorrowful. But Our Lady invites us clearly here to this silent intimacy so that we can be more docile. Um, when you are in a big place of pilgrimage with crowds, okay, how docile are you to the Holy Spirit? I don't know, but you're definitely docile to the crowd because you have to follow everybody. When you are in a place of pilgrimage like here, where there's no crowd to follow, yeah, we have a better chance to be docile to the personal ways Jesus loves us, the personal ways he wants to lead us, and therefore the personal ways the Holy Spirit wants to act in our life. And therefore, the personal joy that Christ wants to offer to us.